Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to His Word being preached. Good morning, Church. Um, for those who don't know me, my name is Eli Swart. I'm uh, one of the pastors here, and um, I just want to, um, I just want us to pray while we busy taking off the offering and so on. I just want us to pray as well. Um, as you saw in the announcements, this month we're going to have our uh, show for global prayer and fast from the 24th for um, three days. But we want to pray um, around that time as well a bit more. Um, and, you know, we, we, in Shofar we really value prayer, but we also realize, if we're really honest with ourselves, um, Sometimes we value prayer more in principle than in practice. Can we be that honest with ourselves? <laughs> when, we, when we look at our lives, we realize that in principle, yes, we value prayer, but we, we, don't, we don't have as much of a culture of prayer as we'd like to have, I suppose. And I'm talking about us individually and us corporately. We, we, we're going to be praying um, during this, this month and, and especially during the time of fasting and around the time of fasting for, for, for breakthrough. And um, I'm going to ask us now to pray for breakthrough in, in different areas, breakthrough in our lives individually, breakthrough in our families, you know, marriages and families, breakthrough for, um, for, um, for us as a church, and, and also I think breakthrough in our country because I really think we need we need serious breakthrough in our country, and, and I do think God is fixing to, to give us breakthrough, and I, uh, even though it might not look the way we expect it to look necessarily. But, but let's pray for breakthrough. But I just want to say even, almost more than all of those specific areas in which we need breakthrough, I think we need breakthrough, and, and, I, and I think this is true for us as a congregation, for us as a church movement, as Shofar, but also for for all churches in South Africa and the world, we need breakthrough in, in terms of really having a, a culture of prayer. Um, and, and I'm sure there are places in the world where, where the church is getting it um, right a, a lot better than, than we are. Um, and, you know, praise God for that. But, but I really think in general, the church in general in the world, we need one of the breakthroughs we need most is this breakthrough in the area of prayer, just really living lives of prayer. Um, so... Um, let's, uh, firstly, I just want to encourage you, you know, let's, let's really take this, uh, this opportunity of corporately coming together around this, you know, praying for breakthrough and praying for, for breakthrough in terms of a culture of prayer. Let's take this seriously. I want to invite all of you to, to fast and to pray with us, not only during those three days, but, but, you know, this whole month, let's, let's pray together. Get, get, uh, those little, um, info brochures at the, uh, or prayer guide, guidance brochures at the info table, um, especially the, the small group facilitators, the guys in your small groups uh, who are not yet this morning, then, um, you know, grab a handful for your, for your whole small group. Um, and let's really pray together. And, and let's, let's really trust God that, that he'll establish really a culture of prayer in our lives individually and amongst us corporately. Uh, but let's start praying now. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to give us two or three minutes. And let's turn to each other in groups of two or three and, and let's pray for, the, for this breakthrough. Amen. Yes, Father God, we, we just come and consecrate ourselves to you, Lord. And on the one hand, we pray, Lord, please forgive us for not praying more, Lord. Please forgive us, Lord, for not realizing, Lord, how dependent we are on you. Um, please forgive us, Lord, for not adequately expressing that dependence in prayer, Lord. And please help us, Lord, to, to just, Lord, have such a revelation of our total dependence on you, Lord, that we'll, Lord, that we won't be able to help, Lord, living lives of prayer, of constant prayer and crying out to you in prayer. Lord, just give us that realization of how dependent we are on you. Lord, we, we just come and ask you lord you lord you know how much breakthrough we need in our lives individually lord in our in our families lord in our churches lord god in our country lord you know how much breakthrough we how desperately we need breakthrough lord and lord we we look to you as the only source lord of that breakthrough only you can help us lord there's no other solution lord there's no other lasting solution 
And we come to you and we pray and we ask you, Lord, to, to do what only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen. I, I heard a saying this, uh, I think it was this past week, um, which said, if you only pray when you're in trouble, then you're really in trouble. If you only pray when you're in trouble, then you're really in trouble as a Christian. Um, and, um, you know, our, our prayer lives reveal to us um, how dependent we really are on God or how dependent we think we are on God. Um, if, we, if we think we can pretty much cope by ourselves uh, without God's intervention, then we won't pray much. But if we realize that we cannot cope by ourselves and we need God's constant intervention, we'll pray a lot. And to be very honest with you, that thought convicts me because it, realizes, because it makes me realize that I, I don't realize how, how dependent I am on God. Um, because if I did, I, it would show more in my prayer life. Um, so, you know, that's why I prayed and, and asked God for, for more of a revelation of our dependence on Him. Because I think we all need that. Amen. And, um, you know, the amazing thing is God, you know, prayer is not just something that we do. Prayer is just like chatting to my wife, talking to my wife. It's not just something I do, you know, something I can put on my, my to-do list, you know, my task list and then... You know, at the end of the day, I can tick it off and say, whew, you know, I've done that one. You know, I can take that one off my, off my to-do list and then I'll, I'll put it on tomorrow again. But, you know, at least for today, I can take it off. <clears throat> if we approach conversation with our sibling, uh, no, sibling, our spouse, sorry, our spouse in that way, then, then the, the whole approach is wrong. But why is it then that so often we approach praying that way? As though it's just an item on our to-do list that we that we that we want to be able to tick off, and then you know once we've ticked it off, we feel better about ourselves. And who you know, thank goodness, you know, I've at least ticked that one off. You know, if we do it like that, then then prayer becomes a performance rather than part of a relationship. And and prayer, um, prayer is relationship, right? It's not just something that we do. It's not a performance that we give, you know. It's, it's not just an obligation we have. It is our relationship with God. You know, and, and in that sense um, also, you know, we, we shouldn't, you know, sometimes we want to pray because we want the rewards of prayer. And there are rewards of prayer, you know. Um, the more we spend time with God, the more we become like Him. You know, that's a reward. Um, the things that we actually ask for in prayer, God actually answers our prayers, you know, when we pray according to His will, and we receive those answers to prayer, and in a sense, that's a reward of prayer. But until prayer becomes its own biggest reward, we're not really praying for the right reason. Until just that joy and privilege of spending time with God, until that in itself becomes the greatest reward, we're not really praying for the right reasons. Um, and, I, and I just want to encourage you, you know, I'm, I'm speaking as someone who's not by, by no means arrived in this area. I just want to encourage all of us. Let's, let's, really, um, let's really approach God um, in prayer, not as something we do as just part of our to-do list, but something that, that we really do because we just love spending time with God and because um, just spending time with God is its own reward. In spending time with God in prayer. Um, <clears throat> let's go to Psalm 3. Um, I'm going to be reading from the NIV, and I'm actually going to be preaching on, on prayer this morning, praying in the face of fear. Um, now, the reality is we as human beings are, are very emotional creatures. <laughs> God created us that way. He created us with emotions, and our emotions are very powerful. I mean, one of the ways you can see that, sort of just by the way, is in the way the devil tempts us. 
Okay, the devil's been around for a few thousand years, right? So he, he's a keen observer of human nature so that he can exploit human nature and tempt us well. So he, he understands us sometimes in certain ways a bit better than we understand ourselves. And how does he tempt us? Does he just come and put a thought in our minds? You know, boom. Because we know he does that. Um, in John 13, um, after, you know, around, around the the account of Jesus washing his disciples' feet, it says that Satan had already placed in Judas's heart to betray Jesus, right? So the reality is Satan can put thoughts in your, in your, in your head. But, but notice he doesn't say he had already placed in Judas's head the thought to betray Jesus. It says he placed it in his heart. And, and, and in, the, in the Bible, the heart is, is like the, the, the center of our human being. I mean, when we, in, as modern people, talk about heart, we think head as opposed to heart, as opposed to hands. You know, your head, your thoughts, your heart, your emotions, and your hands, your, your actions. Um, but the Bible doesn't use heart in that sense. The Bible uses heart in the Old and New Testament as the nerve center of the, of, of the control center. If you think about it, I'm a, I study chemical engineering, you know. So in any chemical plant, you have a control center. You have a control room. And the control room is, is where all the, the nerves of the whole plant feeds to, you know. All the feedback comes to the control center. You have all the dials and stuff there, all the printouts and that tell you, you know, how the plant's doing, you know, the measurements and so on. And there you can control everything. You can open the valves, close the valves, you know, open and, and shut the doors or, you know, put, add more heat or more pressure or more whatever, you know. And, and, and the heart is like, according to the Bible, when the Bible uses the word heart in Old and New Testament, it uses it as the control room of the human life. So it includes the thoughts, the emotions, um, the desires, all of those things. And, and when the devil tempts us, he doesn't just give us a thought. He gives us a thought linked with emotion. An emotional thought, which is much more powerful much more difficult to resist. And, and if he can, he doesn't only give us a thought linked with the emotion, but also a thought linked with the emotion and a physical craving or desire. And that's how he tempts us. And it shows us how powerful our emotions are. Because our emotions aren't entirely rational. So, so if the devil wants to bypass our rationality and get us to do something which we actually don't want to do because we know it's wrong, then he uses our emotions against us to get us to do it. And that shows you how powerful our emotions are. We're very emotional. I mean, even us as guys, I mean, we, we often sort of entertain the stereotype that, you know, women are emotional and men are not emotional. It's, it's not entirely true. <laughs> we just don't understand our emotions as well. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we, <laughs> we, we're just not as gifted emotionally, you know, as, as ladies are. So, so, so when our wives ask us, you know, what are you feeling? It's like, we don't really know. It, we are feeling something, but we don't really understand entirely what we're feeling, you know. So, so sometimes it's just easier to say, no, not really feeling anything really. <laughs> sometimes when you're in your nothing box, then that is actually true. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, we, we really are emotional. And when we look at the times in our lives, the, the highs and the lows in our lives, we can see that very clearly. Both the highs and the lows in our lives are intensely emotional times. Intensely emotional times. And, you know, therefore we as human beings need to learn to deal with emotions because the reality is we start off not knowing how to deal with emotions. Have you seen babies lately? One of the characteristics of a, of a little baby or a little child is they don't know how to process their emotions. They actually need to learn how to do it. That's, that's where tantrums come from. You know, that, that is a baby saying, I'm feeling intense emotions. I'm not getting what I want, and I'm very emotional about it, and I'm just venting it. I'm expressing it <laughs> because I don't know how to deal with it. It's too much for me. It's overpowering. You know, last night, our little boy, Ethan, who's a, just over a year old, uh, he didn't want to sleep. 
you know, I was putting the other two, Kirsten and Justin, to bed, you know, reading a bit for them. And, and all the time while we, was re- while we were reading, I heard Ethan, you know, blaring in the background, you know. <laughs> Eventually, Rochelle came out of the room with Ethan and said, you take him, you know. <laughs> so I sat for a while with Ethan. Um, and, and he was... He was so emotional. He was, you know, that, that place where you're crying so hard that, that even when you stop crying, you go like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> he was at that place. He'd worked up his emotions into a complete state where he couldn't, because he, he, didn't, he didn't know how to handle it. He doesn't know how to handle his emotions. He doesn't know how to process his emotions. <clears throat> but so often, even as adults, when we learn with time how to process our emotions, praise God, a little bit better. But even so, often we, we don't learn how to process our emotions well. We learn to process our emotions in all the wrong ways. We do process our emotions, but in the wrong ways. Or we just hide the <laughs> a little bit better, you know. <laughs> you know, that, that sobbing, you know. We just hide it a little bit better. In other words, we, we, we learn to handle our emotions by suppressing it. And you know, that, that's what the world teaches us. On the one hand, conservative people, even conservative Christians, will tell you, no, just, just hide your emotions. Just suppress them. They're unseemly. You know? They're not appropriate for public consumption. You know, so just suppress them. In fact, there's something wrong with your emotions. Emotions are actually bad. You know? some, some conservative people feel that. You know? Some religious people feel that. Emotions are actually bad. Emotions are the enemy. As though you know, God created us without emotions and then the devil so, sort of somehow slipped in emotions you know, as part of our creation. No, God created emotions. So you know, the, the conservative religious way of suppressing emotions, that's clearly not the right way to deal with emotions. But then there's also sort of the more liberal, irreligious way of dealing with emotions. And, and, and sort of many modern people sort of pride themselves. Of, no, we're emotionally very authentic, you know. We don't suppress our emotions, you know. We're authentic with our emotions. We just put it all out there, you know. We don't hide it. We, we are true to ourselves. We express our emotions. We vent our emotions. But we know that that is not healthy either. And I mean, even secular psychology is discovering this. Just venting your emotion. Because there were, for a long time, you know, in the last couple of decades, there was this psychological thing that, no, actually, you, it's, it's very bad to suppress your emotions. Rightly so. I mean, to bottle up your emotions is bad. And it is unhealthy. Uh, so rightly, you know, the psychologists have been saying, but it's unhealthy, it's, it's, it's bad for you. Don't bottle up your emotions, don't suppress your emotions. But then they said, just vent it, just express it. You know, don't try and hide it at all. Just be extremely brutally honest about your emotions and just put it all out there. But now they're discovering, but actually that's not healthy either. They're discovering, and I'm talking about even secular uh, psychologists, that angry people, the more they express their anger, the more angry they become the more they struggle with anger. The more they express their resentment, the more resentful they actually become, the more bitter they become. So that's not helping either. That's actually also worsening the situation. So now you have you know, the conservative religious people saying suppress and the liberal irreligious people saying vent. But then you have the Bible and specifically the Psalms giving us a third way a better way of dealing with our emotions. Um, and I'm going to read Psalm chapter 3. And, and I just want you to notice, when you read the Psalms, Psalms are beautiful, powerful, um, very symbolic, um, uh, rich in, in, in um, images and figurative language, songs and poems of praise and prayer. But, but one of the things you pick up is that the emotions in the Psalms are very raw. They're very intense, and they're very wide-ranging. I mean, you can cover the whole spectrum of human emotions as you read through the Psalms. You'll, 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 you'll um, notice all of them there. So let's, let's just read um, Psalm 3, and there's a specific emotion. There are, there's more than one emotion in the Psalm, but there's a specific emotion, which is the main emotion in the Psalm um, that I want us to look at. 
So Psalm 3, and I'm reading from the NIV. It says, O Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you are a shield around me, O Lord. You bestow glory on me and lift up my head. To the Lord I cry aloud, and he answers me from, from his holy hill. I lie down and sleep. I awake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear the tens of thousands drawn up against me on every side. Arise, O Lord. Deliver me, O my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Now, um, you know, some of us, you know, probably most of us as modern people, we read that and we want to say, whoa, 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 David, seriously, you know. As it says at the beginning of Psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. David, we, we do not express our emotions so blatantly. We do not <laughs> ask for vengeance on our enemies, you know, like that. You know, it's, you know, David, you know, you, you need to tone it down a bit, you know. That kind of raw, intense emotion, you know, anger expressed in that way, you know, it sort of makes us a bit uncomfortable, you know, squeamish. You know, does that even belong in the Bible? <laughs> Come be honest. Who have you th- thought that, you know, as we were reading it, you know? Some of you were thinking that, right? What that tells us about prayer is that prayer is not, okay, I I sort of work through my emotions, I work through my feelings, I work through my thoughts, I sort of sort them out, filter out the bad stuff, and then I come to God with my nicely filtered, packaged prayer with all the right feelings and all the right things to say, and I bring it to God so that it doesn't offend Him. What this psalm is telling us is that's not biblical prayer. Biblical prayer, in the words of, uh, you know, um, Tim Keller says it so helpfully. He says, biblical prayer is, uh, biblical prayers are pre-reflective outbursts in the presence of God. Pre-reflective outbursts. In other words, before you've reflected on it and processed it and filtered it and sort of packaged it. You bring your raw emotions just as they are and you bring them and you process them in God's presence. You don't process them so that you can bring them into God's presence. You bring them into God's presence and process them in God's presence. Pre-reflective outbursts of prayer. Which don't need to be theologically correct. That's why they're in the Bible. God already knows what we're thinking. All the wrong things we're thinking. He already knows all the wrong things we're feeling before we say it. Why are we trying to hide it from Him? As though we can hide it from Him. He knows our hearts better than we do. So what, what, what this is telling us is when we come to God in prayer, we must come brutally honestly. In other words, the one place you can vent is in God's presence. So where conservative religion says, suppress your feelings, and liberal irreligion says, vent your feelings, the Bible and the Psalms specifically say, Pray your feelings. Pray your feelings. Bring your feelings to God in prayer. And I just want to um, show you, I mean, in, in verse 6, you'll see, I will not fear tens of thousands drawn up against me. This is David, you know. <laughs> his son, Absalom, had just done a coup and won over most of Israel. And him and, and his palace guard and a few, you know, loyal followers were with him. They were fleeing from the palace when, when this prayer was being written, this psalm was being written. And he literally had tens of thousands run up against him. You know, sometimes the Bible and songs in general, but the Bible and, and the Psalms specifically, use hyperbole. This is not hyperbole. <laughs> this is one case when, when, when um, you know, David is not exaggerating when he says tens of thousands. He has, and they want to kill him. He has great reason for fear. And that's the central emotion being dealt with in this Psalm, is the emotion of fear. How do you deal with fear? Now, um, three things. And, and, and fear is a very powerful emotion. It, it, it might be one of the most powerful and the most primal emotions. 
Um, there are certain emotions that we have to learn to feel, like hope or doubt. Those are emotions that you sort of are a bit more intellectual. As a baby, you don't have quite the capacity to necessarily feel them. But fear, you don't have to learn. Right from the beginning, you know, when you come out of that nice warm place, safe place, you know, inside your mom, to this cold, um, scary world, you know, that you don't understand, fear is probably, I mean, that's why babies probably cry. It's a cry of fear. <laughs> so it, it's, it's a very primal and, and powerful emotion. And, and David uh, comes and he shows us how to deal with it in God's presence. So I just want to show you two phases of fear, uh, five foundations of faith, and then three practices of prayer uh, in, in how, to, how to deal with fear. Now, in the first two verses, it says, O oh Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of, of me, God will not deliver him. And <clears throat> there are two, two levels of fear here. Um, many psychologists have, have spoken about fear on, on these two levels. Um, on, there's the level of, of fear you know, being afraid of something in a specific situation. And then there's anxiety, which is a much more persistent kind of fear. It's not linked to a specific situation. Uh, one, um, one psychologist described it in this way. He said, if I'm walking across the street and, you know, for some other reason, a car comes around a close bend and I realize this car is coming really fast. And, um, you know, if I keep walking at this pace, it's going to hit me sort of, you know, fear kicks in. Because it came around, uh, this car came around the corner unexpectedly. I didn't see it. I see it. And in a split second, I, I hear it. I see it. Split second, I, I see the car. I, I judge the, diff, the, the, the distance between myself and the car and the speed of the car. And I judge the distance to the sidewalk and how fast I'm walking. And I realize I'm going to have to sort of increase my speed. <laughs> because me and the car can't cross the same patch of road at the same time. It's not going to work for me. It's not going to work out well for me. And fear kicks in and adrenaline kicks in and I start running across the road to reach the sidewalk in time. And the car misses me. That, that's fear. And, and that's, that kind of fear can actually be healthy because it activates you. But then, this guy, this psychologist said, if, if then, after the situation is over, and the danger has passed, if then there is an abiding sense of fear, of feeling vulnerable, of feeling um, insecure, of feeling afraid that, thing, that, that I might die, then that's not just fear, that's anxiety. That's anxiety. In other words, where where fear is like this big high-felt thunderstorm that comes and, you know, there's a lot of thunder and lightning and hard rain. And then after a while it stops and the clouds go open up and the sun comes out and everything smells more fresh. And, um, you know, you can smell the grass and the plants and, and the earth and, and everything just looks cleaner and brighter. In other words, that, that kind of fear is intense and sometimes a bit unpleasant, like a thunderstorm, but it's actually good in it can actually be good for you. Anxiety is more like a, like a Cape Town drizzle. <laughs> no, it just comes down. You know, drizzle, drizzle, drizzle for days and weeks on end, you know, and the wind's blowing and it's like cold and, it's, and, and eventually your soul starts to mold you, you know. <laughs> Anxiety is like that. It just goes on and on and on and it never stops. And that's not good. Because where fear can be very activating. And, and, and <clears throat> you know, I've, I've had a few experiences, and most parents probably have, where your kids get up on something, and then all of a sudden they start falling down, you know, and you dive, you know, and somehow, you know, it, it's like everything goes into slow motion. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but somehow you have more time than you, than you think you have, and you actually reach them and you catch them, you know, just before they eat the ground. And it's like, whew, how did I do that, you know? <laughs> You know, or, or, you know, I, I, I remember when, when we were um, younger uh, at school, still primary school, we used to go and play tok-toki. You know, that's a silly game where you go into people's yards and, you know, sort of knock on their door and then you run away. But then sometimes, you know, you don't realize the dog is there. <laughs> you sort of sneak in, you know, and the dog sort of 
doesn't hear you. And then you knock, and he's like, wow, 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 and he's like big dog. And you run, and you, you know, where you had to climb over the fence, somehow, you know, <laughs> you find yourself on the other side of the fence, and you think like, oh, how on earth did I get here? And you jump like clear over the fence, which was way too high for you to jump over. I mean, you struggled to climb over it, getting in, but you didn't struggle getting out. What happened? It's that, that, that fear that kicked in, that activated your autonomous nervous system, that got your adrenal gland secreting adrenaline, and boom, you know, you were over the wall. You did things that you didn't think you could do. You, know? you, you, you had more time, and you, you reach your kid falling in time. So that kind of fear is activating, and it can be good. But anxiety is debilitating. Instead of activating you, it paralyzes you. It paralyzes you because there's this abiding sense of fear that just drags you down and that prevents you from actually living uh, and acting. Um, And it's very harmful towards you. And we see both those levels of fear here. Because in the first verse, David says, Oh Lord, how many are are my foes? How many rise up against me? And like I said, in verse 6 he says, "I, I, I will not fear. And in Beginning of verse 3, there's a but. He said, but I will not fear. So that means he, he was fearing. So he's dealing with his fear. And, and that's the fear of the situation, the, the, the situation of danger. But then he, verse 2 goes on and it says, <clears throat> many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. When that fear produces that, I am, it, it's not only that I'm in danger now, but there's no hope for me. I'm going to constantly be in danger, and this danger is not going to stop. In fact, it's going to kill me because God's not going to deliver me. That's when anxiety sets in, and this abiding drizzle kind of anxiety that, that you know, debilitates and, and paralyzes you, settles in your heart. And, you know, here's what the people were saying. Here's what David's enemies were saying. Remember King Saul? He was also king, just like David. But he did all kinds of bad things. He killed the priests in, in, in Nob. He, you know, he, 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 he turned away from the Lord. He sinned terribly. And you know what? David has done the same. Have you heard what he did to Bathsheba's husband, Uriah? He committed adultery with Bathsheba. <clears throat> and then he had a husband assassinated. And remember that old thing about the census? When a few, uh, you know, tens of thousands of people died because of David's decision and his pride. He wanted to number, you know, his armies. See how, in the physical, how powerful he was. God is doing the same thing to David that he did to Saul. Just like the kingdom was taken away from Saul, now the kingdom is being taken away from David because David has done things that are just as bad as, and even worse than what Saul did. Just like Adamon was saying. And, and David's like, oh, you know, what if they're right? You know, actually, I have done a few terrible things because this is at the end of his life. I've done a few really terrible things. What if they're right? What if God really won't deliver me? Anxiety. Now, so there are these two levels of fear, you know, normal fear and then anxiety. And, but then there, there are five things, five foundations of faith that, that need to be there for us to deal with this fear and this anxiety. <clears throat> Firstly, I'll just mention them. Shoulder your your shield, relocate your glory, see your substitute, trust his track record, and then renounce your fear. So firstly, he says, but, and and that first word in in verse 3 is very important. He says, here's the problem. Tens of thousands against me, I have reason to be afraid. They're saying God will not deliver me, I have reason to be anxious, but. And, And whenever you're dealing with your emotions, that is a very important word. Okay? I want you to remember that word. Whenever you're dealing with your emotions, especially negative emotions, remember the word but. If in dealing with your emotions you don't use the word but, you're not dealing with your emotions in a biblical way. (laughs) Be very honest about your emotions, about what what, what you're feeling, about what the problem is, about what the danger is, about what the threat is. But then follow it up with the word but. But... You are a shield around me, O Lord. You bestow glory on me and lift up my head. So, <clears throat> firstly, he says, he says, you are a shield to me. No, 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 that's not what he says. You are a shield for me. No, 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 that's not what he says either. What does he say? 
you are a shield around me. Can you see? Now you get in, in military, because this is a lot of the imagery we use here is military imagery. You get two kinds of shields. You get that little round shield. So if you're right-handed, you'll have the round shield on your, on your left hand and your sword in your right hand. And then as your enemy strikes at you, you'll use this round shield to sort of ward off the blow. And then you'd strike with your, with your sword. And then you'd ward off another blow and you strike. So it's a very mobile shield. You can run with it and, and all that um, for close combat. You know, <clears throat> that's clearly not the shield that he's talking about here because that's not a shield around you. But then you, when you wanted to, there was another kind of shield was like, which was like a big door. You know, this big rectangular shield, you know, that, that covered all of you, um, that you sort of had to peep over, and that even at the edges sort of came slightly around. And that you'd use when you were invading a place, when you were besieging a city or something. Like the Roman legionaries, you know, you remember they would like walk, lock shields and walk forward um, like this. And, and, you know, that shield, you can almost to a extent say it, 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 it comes a little bit around you, but also not quite. But that shield only works when you're actually going forward, when you're following your leader, okay? So, you know, one thing that we do need to learn is that when you're dealing with something like fear, don't turn around and run away. Follow your leader. <laughs> Follow your general into battle. When you're feeling that fear, when, when there's adversity, it's not only you being attacked, but your general, Jesus, you know, who will lead you onto the field with honor and off the field with, 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 with victory. He's also leading you into battle. He's leading you against the enemy that he wants you to, to overcome. But even that shield doesn't go around you. God goes far beyond what any physical shield can do. And he actually is not a shield in front of you, but he's a shield around you. He protects you on every side. Now, what does that mean? That means, and this is, this is so big that for some of you, this is going to be hard to believe. That means that everything that is happening to you, even the things that are causing your fear, is part of God's shielding you and being a shield around you. In other words, even things that make you scared is God busy shielding you of things that would make you more scared. That would make you more scared. Even things that are bad for you, that happen to you, is God, God's means of shielding you of things that would be even worse for you. God is a shield around you. Everything that happens to you, if you're a child of God, is God busy shielding you. Everything. I mean, that's what the word says. It says, for we know that in all things God is working together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now, we don't always understand it. We think that God needs to shield me from these things. But God didn't shield David from difficulty. But he was a shield around him in difficulty. And as we're going to see, as we see in the next line, in fact, it says, you are a shield around me, O Lord. You bestow glory on me and lift up my head. That sort of shows us how God is actually shielding. One of the ways in which God is shielding David, not in this situation, but through this situation. Literally, what that phrase says is not, you, you bestow glory on me. The, the NIV is actually watering it down quite badly here. It says, you are my glory and the lifter of my head. It doesn't say, you bestow glory on me and lift up my head. It says, you are my glory and the lifter of my head. And, and that's what I mean with relocate your glory. You see, David <clears throat> was the king of Israel. A very successful king. He'd slayed the, slain the giants. He'd conquered massive, massive parts of land for God and for the people. He was the king. I mean, the previous king didn't set the bar very high, Saul. You know, David was like, you know, even as the, they sang with that song, Saul killed his thousands, David his ten thousands. I mean, he, he was very impressive. Uh, he had, God gave him victory, and, and in his 40 years of reign, you know, eventually he, he defeated all his enemies around him, and had, uh, Israel had perfect peace, you know, complete peace, you know, which they hadn't had before. They were the top dogs, where in the beginning they were at the bottom, now they were on top. There were other countries paying tribute to them, instead of them having to pay tribute to other countries. 
He had, he'd married the previous king's daughter, Michal. He had a few wives and concubines. Go and read in First and Second Samuel. He um, had lots of riches. He'd accumulated massive wealth and riches. He'd written many psalms. He was world famous. He was feared all over. But somehow in all of that, his glory had moved from being the Lord to being something else. Somehow, other things had become more important to him. That's why he says, you are my glory. But, he doesn't just say, remember verse 3 starts with the word but. But, I'm reminding myself, you are my glory. I realize I've, I've let it slip. And, 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 and somehow, my riches, my military power, my, my family had become my glory. But now, my own son, family, was driving me from my palace with my own military power which I had built up. And all the other things that had become my glory, God in one foul swoop stripped away from David. And David had to say, sorry, Lord. (laughs) I can see now why I'm so afraid and so anxious. It's because I'd actually made those things my glory. But now, now I remind myself, Lord, you are my glory and the lifter of my head. So shoulder your shield but relocate your glory from all the other things that you've placed them in. Make God your glory again. It's so easy for us to slip into that. All of us, even as committed Christians, it's so easy for us to slip and put our glory in other things. Um, and, and God was using, here's the irony, God was using this situation, which, called, which should cause, rightly cause, great fear in David's life to actually shield him from himself. And from making other things an idol. Can you see that? Okay, so uh, shoulder your shield, relocate your glory, and then see, the, see your substitute. Now, in, in verse 4, he says, To the Lord I cry aloud, and he answers from his holy hill. Now, to the Lord I cry aloud. In other words, it, the picture there is a picture of, on the one hand, um, fervency, praying fervently. In other words, w- when we pray, just just, just a, a tip, and, and, and um, Hebrews says that the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Prayer, in order to avail, must be fervent. You know, it's just like you deal with your emotions in prayer. Your, your emotions are supposed to be, uh, your, your prayers are supposed to be emotional. They're supposed to be fervent. They're supposed to be intense. It's not just a little rhyme we say. Now, that's why these you know, repetitive uh, mantra kinds of prayers that you just sort of recite, you know, memorize and then recite. Th- those are not primarily the kind of prayers that the Bible has in mind. No, no, nothing wrong, obviously, with, with having a preset prayer that you pray. I mean, the Lord's Prayer, Our Father, is a prayer like that. But, but just sort of saying the same prayer over and over and over again without letting it engage your emotions, but you're just sort of reciting it, and you think that the more times I say it, the more effect it's going to have on God, you know. Every time I say it, I'm twisting God's arm, you know, and I'm sort of winding it up, you know. Eventually, when you try that, eventually you realize God has a rubber arm. When you let go of it, he's going to spin and like (laughs) slap you a few times in the face, you know, so you can wake up and realize, you know, God has a rubber arm, you know. You can't twist his arm, you know. You can't nag him into doing what you want him to do. You know, spiritual nagging doesn't work. <laughs> but, but prayer should be fervent, intense, fervent. You know, cry aloud to the Lord. David was crying aloud to the Lord. But he also speaks of a degree of confidence. Lord, I'm crying out loud to you. Not only desperation, but confidence. I'm crying out loud to you. But where could David get that confidence? Like I said, he wasn't much better than Saul. He'd committed murder, adultery, you know, idolatry in a sense. All of those things. Now, weren't the people right that it was just like Saul and that he didn't deserve his prayers to be answered? Yes. David didn't deserve his prayers to be answered any more than King Saul had deserved his prayers to be answered. They're right. But the difference is David could see the substitute. He says, and he answered me from his holy hill. What is his holy hill? And in Psalm 2, if you go to um, verse 6, it says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He has said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Today I have begotten you. 
And we know that refers to Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate king, the son of David, which God, whom God installed in, in Zion, his holy hill. Now, Zion was, was the temple mount. What was it? Well, it was the mount on which Jerusalem was built, but the temple was, when he, when he talks about my holy hill, he's specifically talking about the temple. And the temple was both the place, was, was both the um, place of God's presence and reign. You know, it's the earthly equivalent of God's heavenly throne was the temple. But it was also the place of sacrifice. And in Jesus, those two come together because he's the king. Remember on the cross, he wore a crown of thorns. He's the king who suffered for us. He's both the king who rules and the king who died for us. I've installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. And what David was doing was he was looking towards the temple and saying, but my reason why I have confidence that my prayers will be answered is not because I've been so good, because I know I haven't. I've been no better than King Saul, no better whatsoever. But where he trusted in his own works, and where these people saying God will not deliver him, are in a sense assuming that God should treat me based on my own good behavior, and that my behavior hasn't been good, therefore God shouldn't protect me and deliver me. They write, if God did treat me as I deserved. But the fact is God doesn't treat me as, my, as I deserved. God, there's God's holy hill. And on God's holy hill, there's a sacrifice. There's a substitute. There is one who dies in my place on the altar. And obviously, we, looking back from the New Testament perspective, can have even more confidence than, they, than David had because we saw the ultimate fulfillment of that sacrifice on God's holy hill. We saw Jesus as the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, dying in our place. The king. I mean, like it's the king, King David praying here. We actually have the king actually dying in our place. You know, his prayers on the cross will not answer it even though he was innocent. I mean, if one person in all of history could have said, God, answer me because of the good life that I've lived, then it was Jesus. But even though he deserved to have his prayers answered, he hung on the cross and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Lord, take this bitter cup away from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. His prayers were not answered, so that, even though he deserved it, so that our prayers can be answered even though we don't deserve it. In other words, we can have the same confidence. The only confidence we can have in prayer, the only reason we can have to pray out loud and to pray fervently to the Lord is the confidence that David had, but we can have more of it because we see Jesus as fulfilling the sacrifice on, on the holy hill. So we also need to say that God answered from his holy hill. Where does God answer us from? Same place he answers David from, from his holy hill, from the place where the ultimate sacrifice was made for us. And that can give us confidence. And then also, uh, trust his track record. In verse 5, it says, I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. And it's, it's not clear in, in the English translation here because it's a bit difficult to translate. But it's a, the tense there is perfective. In other words, um, continuous. I continuously or habitually lie down to sleep and I wake habitually because the Lord sustains me. In other words, this is God's track record of faithfulness. He always sustains me. I'm looking back on his track record. I'm not only looking um, to him as a shield. I'm not only looking to him in, uh, as my glory and the lifter of my head who gives me victory. I'm not only looking to him as the ultimate sacrifice and substitute, but I'm looking at his track record of faithfulness in my life. I know. Even, I've been in situations like this before. I go to sleep. I wake up because God sustains me. In other words, in my time of greatest vulnerability when I'm asleep, when I cannot defend myself, God defends me. And he has been doing that for years. See, David was a great warrior. He could have, he could have trusted in his own ability because he could pretty much defeat anyone in battle. But there was one time in his life when he couldn't defeat anyone, and that was when he was asleep. A little child with a knife or a sword could come and kill him if he wanted to. That was how vulnerable he is. That's how vulnerable we are. And David looks at, at the times. He says, regularly, in fact, every 24 hours... I go through periods where I'm, where, where I'm completely vulnerable, where I cannot protect myself. And then the Lord has always protected me in those times. In other words, 
anxiety, that anxiety that will cause you not to sleep, David says, I have no reason for it. I can sleep in peace because of God's faithfulness, God's faithfulness sustaining me. I don't have to be anxious. And when we become anxious, we should just look back at God's perfect track record in our lives and say, but look how God has sustained me. Look how God has been faithful. And then banish anxiety and actually sleep. (laughs) So trust his track record and then renounce your fear. In verse 6 it says, I will not fear the tens of thousands drawn up against me on every side. Why can he say that? Why can he say tens of thousands, and this was literally true for him, surrounding me, yet I won't be afraid? Because in verse 3 he could pray, Lord, you are a shield around me. It doesn't matter if I have tens of thousands around me because I have a shield around me. I don't have to be afraid. In other words, shift your perspective from looking at your enemies to looking at your God. And instead of telling your God how great your enemies are, why don't you tell your enemies how great your God is? Instead of telling God how your enemies surround you, why don't you tell your enemies how your God surrounds you? Like a shield all around Okay, so those are the five foundations of faith. And then in closing, three practices of prayer in verse 7 and 8. And yet David comes to his prayer proper. You know, He says, Arise, O Lord, deliver me, O my God. Strike my enemies on the jaw, break the teeth of the wicked. Um, in the first part he says, Arise, O Lord, deliver me, O my God. So the first practice of prayer is turn the tables on your fear. Turn the tables on your fear. What do I mean with that? Look what David is doing here. In verse 1, notice carefully, in verse 1 and 2, he says, O Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? How many arise against me? Now he turns, his enemies are arising against him. And now he turns the tables on his enemies and says, Lord, arise against my enemies. Can you see what he's doing? He's taking the very thing that causes him fear and he's turning it around. He's taking the very thing that's causing him fear and he's turning it around on his enemies. He's turning the tables on his enemies. Where his enemies are arising against him, he's saying, God, arise against my enemies. Make them afraid. Because you are greater than they are. Turn the tables on your fear. And then he says, deliver me, O my God. In in verse 2 it says, many are saying, God will not deliver him. And once again, he turns the tables. He says, deliver me, my God. They're saying you won't deliver me. Vindicate me and vindicate yourself because I'm your child. Deliver me. And he turns the tables on his enemies and he turns the tables on his fear. God will deliver me. Praying the very things, asking God for the very things that are causing him fear. So turn the tables on your fear. Um, Then that's the first practice of prayer. The second practice is Believe you've received. Um, it says, strike my enemies on the jaw, break the teeth of the wicked. Once again, the, the NIV uh, makes it a request. Strike your enemies, break the teeth of the wicked. And, and, and the picture here is, is, is of the wicked in a, in a sense, you know, like devouring animals, you know, with sharp teeth, you know, coming after him to attack him. And he's saying, break their teeth so they can't bite me. But it's also, I mean, they're saying God will not deliver him. You know, it's kind of, a little bit more difficult to speak without any teeth, you know. <laughs> it's like David is saying to them, let's see you do that without teeth. God, <laughs> you know, <laughs> punch their teeth out, you know. Let's see how they, they say that you're not going to deliver me when they don't have it, when their teeth are lying on the ground. <laughs> but what the NIV doesn't get across here is that's, that's actually in the past tense. Now, you can understand how it's a bit difficult for the translators to translate that in the past tense. Because it would say, you have struck my enemies on the jaw. You have broken the teeth of the wicked. How are we to understand that? You, you can't really understand that unless you understand that God wants us to have such confidence in Him. When you've done that, when you realize God is your shield, you know, God is your glory, God is your substitute, God is your sustainer. God is the one who is the lifter of your head. Then you can have the confidence 
to thank God for what he's going to do as though he's already done it. Isn't that what the New Testament says as well? I'm, I'm not going to read it, but you can write down if you want to Mark 11 verse 24. Mark chapter 11 verse 24. Where, where Jesus is teaching on prayer. He says, I have faith in God. And then he teaches on prayer and he says, These, you know, when you pray, ask anything concerning yourself and believe that you have received it and it will be yours. You ask and believe that you have received it. When you ask according to God's will, believe that you have received it. In other words, you pray with a confidence. When you're praying according to God's will, you pray with a confidence that it's as though God has already answered your prayer. And that's what David is doing here. Saying, Lord, you've struck my enemies on the jaw. You've broken the teeth of the wicked. But just in the previous verse, it says, God arise. God deliver me. So it's not like he's already been delivered. But then after he asks for that deliverance, for God to arise and for God to deliver him, he thanks God as though God has already done it. So believe that you've received. Turn the tables on your fear. Believe that you've received. And then generalize the blessing. This is the last thing. Uh, Verse 8 says, from the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. And just two ways in which we must generalize it. Firstly, David, through his experience, through this prayer and through God's answer to this prayer, realized it confirmed the truth that he already knew that deliverance comes from the Lord. God is his deliverer. So he generalized the lesson. He generalized the lesson to himself. And, and you know, let, let that through this prayer and through how God has used this prayer and God has allowed me to process my fear in His presence through prayer by praying my fears, let that truth, that deliverance comes from the Lord, be even deeper established. That general truth be even deeper established in my heart so that I have more confidence that God is my deliverer. So that when people say, God will not deliver him, it won't affect me. That anxiety of, ooh, I'm vulnerable, I'm, I'm weak. I'm in danger all the time. Will not be there. The reality yeah, is, yes, you are vulnerable. Yes, you are weak. Yes, you are in danger all the time. But God, deliverance comes from the Lord. So you don't have to be anxious about it. Because the Lord is a shield around you. The Lord has a perfect track record of faithfulness of sustaining you. And it doesn't matter that your life is not perfect and doesn't deserve that kind of protection. Because it's not dependent on you. It's dependent on, on God as your substitute. Deliverance comes from the Lord in every way. But don't only generalize the lesson, but generalize the blessing, not only to yourself, but to all God's people. And that's what he does at the end. He said, may your blessing be on your people. You see, David didn't only pray this prayer out of selfish motives of I want protection. He knew that his son Absalom would not be a good king to Israel. He knew that he wasn't the right king. It wasn't God's choice. Solomon was. So he's saying, Lord, deliver me. Even though it's from my own son, deliver me. But deliver your people. They don't need a king like this. Because, I mean, go and read 2 Samuel, I think it's 15 to 17. You know, Absalom was conniving and and really manipulating people in the situation in order to get them to to follow him and, and, uh, rather than his father, David. Um, but also, he's saying, Lord, just like you deliver me from fear, deliver all your people from fear. I'm not just praying for me. I'm interceding the same thing that I'm asking for myself. I'm interceding for all your people. May your blessing be on all your people. May your blessing be on all your people. Amen. So on the one hand, I'm, I'm saying, don't suppress your, fear, your, your feelings, especially your fears. But also don't just vent them. Pray them. Process them. Uh, face your fears in prayer. Face your fears in the presence of God. Deal with your fears. And let your, the things that caused you fear be things, as you process them in God's presence and God answers your prayers, let them become things that actually cause you faith, that, that cause faith to grow inside of you and cause you confidence. Um, and, and do that in prayer. You know, we so... Somehow, we so want to keep our vulnerability and our weakness and even our sinfulness away from God. I'm going to deal with that. I'm going to sort that out and then I'm going to come to you in prayer. And God is saying, no. Make your prayers pre-reflective outbursts in my presence. 
and process it in my presence and help me to deal with it. So I just want you to, to start doing that right now. I just want you to close your eyes. And those things, and, and for all of us, if we're very honest with ourselves, there are things that cause us fear and even things that cause us anxiety. So I just want you to now just close your eyes and bring those things before the Lord in prayer and do what David did in this, in this psalm. Process it in God's presence through prayer. And, and if you're not sure what it is, say, Holy Spirit, please show me. Please show me what are the things that are causing me fear. Please show me what are the things that are causing me anxiety. And, and often those are the things that we've placed our glory in. When we've placed our glory in something and it's taken away, big fear and anxiety. But if something is not an idol and we haven't placed our glory in it, if it's taken away, it doesn't affect us so deeply. So sometimes, some, maybe, some, uh, it, it, you know, it's something that you're idolizing that is under threat in your life. And you just need to say, Lord, I'm relocating my glory. I'm putting my glory back in. You are my glory. You are the lifter of my head. You are the thing that I need most, not this thing that I'm so afraid of losing. So just, I'm just going to give us a couple of minutes while the band plays softly in the background. And I want you to really brutally, honestly deal with this fear in your heart in, in prayer. Yes, Father God, you know, Lord, that you know our hearts, Lord. We, there's no need for us to hide our hearts from you, Lord, because we can't. Lord, and we just want to come and admit, Lord, that so often we do struggle with fear. Lord, so often we even do struggle with anxiety, Lord. So often we are paralyzed by that anxiety, Lord, that seems to have such a grip on us, Lord, but we want to break free this morning. We want to break free from it, Lord. We want to bring our fears to you, Lord. We want to admit our fears to you. And we want to thank you, Lord, that you you help us deal with our fears. us process our fears and you help us realize that our because you are with us Lord we don't need to be afraid because you are with us Lord no enemy can overcome us because you are with us Lord because you surround us like a shield on all sides in front and behind we need not fear any surprise attack pray, Lord, that those truths will really sink into our hearts. Really sink into our hearts, Lord, and and just dissipate all fear and anxiety. From our hearts. Lord, I just pray, Lord, for every person, especially, Lord, who's feeling that sort of dull sense of, of anxiety, Lord, gripping their hearts, Lord paralyzing them Lord I, I pray Lord that that you loosen those chains that you'll that you'll tear off those chains and those heavy weights in Jesus name Lord every <clears throat> evil demonic spirit that wants to come and reinforce that anxiety we rebuke you now in Jesus name and we command you to flee in Jesus name you have no place in our hearts We are children of the living God. And we pray, Lord, in the face of fear, with boldness, we cry aloud to you. And we thank you that we can be bold, that we can have faith because of your amazing grace on our lives. Because of your amazing grace on our lives, Lord. That is our confidence. You are our confidence. You are our confidence. You are our King. You are the warrior God who defends us on every side. You are the reason we are not afraid. We don't have to be afraid. And we remind ourselves of that. Lord, we know we forget it so often, but we remind ourselves this morning that you, our God, who loves us so much that you would die for us, you are stronger than all and any of our enemies. Our enemies have to fear you. We don't have to fear our enemies. 
just honor you for that. And we pray that our lives, our lives will vindicate your faithfulness and your power and your goodness and be a testimony of your grace in our lives. Be a testimony to this world. And we just pray, Lord, I just want to pray, Lord, that that, that truth will not just be a truth that we know in our heads, but that will really settle in our hearts, in our deepest parts of our beings. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Johannesburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.com. Dot Jarbert.